Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. There's a statement coming up on the screen shortly. Uh, what do you think about this? Hope for the future rises with confidence in one's leaders. Isn't that true? Some of you are laughing because you don't have a lot of confidence these days, but hope for the future rises with confidence in one's leaders. One of the fundamental needs any of us have is the need of hope. It's hard to go on without hope. And for us to have hope, it really helps to know that we're being well-led. But these days, it would seem few of us feel particularly well-led. According to a January poll, only 21% of Americans say they trust the government most of the time. That's down from 24% a year ago. 21%. That means 79% of us say we don't trust the government most of the time. According to a July New York Times poll, more than three-quarters of registered voters in the United States say that the country is headed in the wrong direction. Commensurate with that pessimism is poll data that shows that 57% of Americans disapprove of the current president. And 64% of his own party say they wish that they could put forward a different candidate in 2024. But it begs the question, if not Biden, who? While on the other side of the aisle, more than half of Republicans say they're ready to move on from Donald Trump, but that also begs the question, if not Trump, who? Hope for the future rises with confidence in one's leaders, but more than half of registered American voters say they believe that the country's best days are now behind us. Probably because few have confidence that there is anyone out there who can unify us and get us out of the mess that we are in. And if we have a leadership crisis in America, just look around the world at other countries that are in an even bigger mess. If ever we were ripe for a charismatic world figure who could promise peace and prosperity, it's now. And the scripture says one is coming who looks really good and says all the right things but he will be the Antichrist. But take heart, because the scripture also says that in his time, God will send one who is right for the job, one who is up for the challenge, one who will set all things right and make all things new, and his coming reign is prophesied in the passage of scripture we're looking at today in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. The world may seem to be a mess today, but the hope we have is in the one God has appointed finally to reign. This is the main focus of our next to last installment in the series we've called For Good. We've been looking at the life of Joseph so far and how God has raised up this young man to be the right kind of leader for his generation. 
We've seen how God has used him to save not only his own family from starvation, but the whole nation of Egypt. God has provided for the patriarch Jacob and his family as they have emigrated to Egypt and have embraced their deliverer, as we saw last week. Jacob has been reunited with that son whom he had believed to be dead for 20 years. His family has settled well in Goshen in the north of Egypt. And now, as we transition from Genesis chapter 47 to 48, in a blink, 17 years have gone by. And Jacob is now... 147 years old, and he knows he's about to die. But before he dies, he's got two pieces of unfinished business he wants to take care of. The first is what he does in chapter 48, and the other is what he does in chapter 49. So in Genesis 48, he adopts Joseph's two sons as his own, and in Genesis 49, he blesses all of his sons in kind of a prophetic way before he passes on. So in Genesis 48, we have the story of how how Joseph brings his two sons before his father Jacob, presumably to get a blessing on these boys. And he positions his older son Manasseh at Joseph's right, Jacob's right hand, and he positions his son Ephraim at Jacob's left hand, older and younger, assuming that the older will get the better blessing. But just as he's about to bless the boys, Joseph, uh, Jacob rather switches his hands And he puts his right hand on the younger and his left hand on the older. And Joseph objects and says, no, dad, uh, you've got it wrong. This is the the older one. Put your right hand here. And Jacob says, no, this is the way it's got to be. Because in the future, the younger will be the greater of the two. The older will serve the younger. This is the fourth time in four generations that something like this has happened, where the younger has been passed over for the older. And there's this interesting thing that happens here where it actually is a formal adoption ceremony, not just a blessing, but a formal adoption where Jacob is basically saying, I'm adopting my grandsons. They are now not just my grandsons, they're my sons. They get equal standing with my other sons. That means they get an equal share of the inheritance to come. And that means that in the future, these two sons will become two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, This is an interesting development because it means that Reuben is being passed over. Normally, the oldest son would get a double portion of the father's blessing, a double portion of the father's inheritance. So everybody would get one share, but Reuben, the oldest, should get two shares as the oldest son. But instead, Jacob is passing over Reuben, and he's giving the right of the firstborn to Joseph, perhaps as a reward for having saved the, the family. But through the adoption of these two sons, Joseph is getting not just one portion, but two, one for Ephraim and one for Manasseh. Interestingly, in the book of Hebrews, this is the moment that is pointed to in Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith, as the greatest demonstration of faith in Jacob's life. And so it says in Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, you know, some of the people of the Hall of Fame of Faith are are, are given credit for great acts of faith. Uh, This doesn't look like to be such a big deal. Why, of all the moments of Jacob's life, would Hebrews 11 point to this as a great demonstration of faith? Likely because this man of God, on the brink of death, is passing a blessing on that looks to the future that includes the descendants of these two boys. 
He is confident that in spite of 400 years of enslavement that soon will take place, that his descendants, Jacob's descendants, including these two boys, will endure what God will, uh, will endure and that God will make of them a great nation and bring them back to Canaan and give them the land that had always been promised to be given to Jacob and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he would indeed make of them a great nation in that land, and through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was what was promised to Abraham way back in chapter 12 of Genesis, and that promise was passed on to Isaac and to Jacob, and now in faith, Jacob is, is expressing his uh, faith that, that this is all going to come to pass, and that it will include these two boys. And what happens in chapter 49 shows the same kind of faith. Faith for the future. It's where Jacob passes on his blessing to each of his sons, looking ahead to what will come. Look at verse 1 of chapter 49, where it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Remember, Israel is the other name for Jacob, and those two names are used interchangeably until Jacob dies, and then Typically, the nation is referred to as Israel from that point forward. Jacob is going to go son by son in approximate birth order, and he's going to give an evaluation of each of those sons and then project that evaluation forward into the future and, and talk about the part that each descendant tribe will eventually play when they occupy the land of promise. The lives and natures of Jacob's sons will affect their descendants, the tribe that descends from each one will be a moral reflection of them, which is an important lesson for us, isn't it? Let's call this lesson one from our study today, that our lives lay the moral tracks on which our children will run. Our lives lay the moral tracks on which our children will run. For some of us, that might be a scary thought. But it's an important thing for us to realize because the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves today is laying moral tracks that our children will likely run on. Most significant of these evaluations, or most of these evaluations rather, the, the first, uh, the sons seven, uh, I'm sorry, sons five through 12, the, the seven sons at the end, uh, most of the evaluations are pretty straightforward but pretty insignificant. So they say things like, Zebulun will have success in trade, and Issachar will be subject to forced labor, and Dan will be a judge but proved to be treacherous. Gad will fight valiantly against attackers. Asher will enjoy abundant delicacies. I guess they're going to be Israel's foodies or something. Naphtali, Naphtali will be a free mountain people. They're going to be the hillbillies of Israel. Joseph's sons will be fruitful, so Ephraim and Manasseh will be fruitful. Benjamin will be successful and have abundance to share. And so the evaluation of those sons goes rather quickly and without a lot of import. What's more interesting is the discussion of the fate of the first four sons because it bears on the question of who will lead this family, who will lead this nation going forward. Who will be the one on whom will depend the hopes of Israel? Like any other nation, Israel's hope would depend on how well it was led. Now, you might expect that leadership would pass on to the firstborn, because that's the way it normally went. The firstborn of, of a family, the firstborn son, would get a double portion of the inheritance and would be given leadership of the family going forward. So you'd expect that to go to Reuben. But Jacob says that will not be the case. Look at his evaluation of Reuben, beginning in verse 3, where it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. 
my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Reuben had so much going for him. He was dignified, he was powerful, he was strong. Jacob says, You're, you were my firstborn, my pride and joy, but you have disqualified yourself. Unstable as water, he says, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, Jacob says. Now when it talks about Reuben being unstable as water, it may be a reference to the fact that in Israel, there are many of these dry stream beds they call wadis. And they're usually dry, but when it rains hard, they will quickly fill up. And when they fill up, they might look like, wow, now we have a river. But then they drain out just as quickly as they filled up. And you can't depend on a wadi. They are notoriously undependable as a source of water that way. And that's what Reuben has proven to be. Uh, the reference here to, you know, you've gone up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, that's a reference to a little episode that took place back in chapter 35, verse 22, where the lusty young Reuben went and slept with one of his father's concubines, the woman named Bilhah, the mother of two of Reuben's brothers. Isn't that gross? And because of the moral tracks laid by Reuben, when Jacob found out about this, he was devastated. And because of the moral tracks laid by Reuben for his children, the tribe of Reuben can no more be trusted to lead the nation than Reuben himself. He's unreliable. If Reuben was so careless in dishonoring his father, how could Reuben's descendants be trusted to lead the nation in honoring the Lord? And so here's a second lesson I think that we can take away from our study today, and that is that in God's economy, a leader's character matters. In God's economy, a leader's character matters. I mean, these days, we're more inclined to say we don't really care about a leader's personal life as long as we prosper under that person's leadership. But it wasn't that long ago as Americans, we thought very differently about such things. Do you remember a guy named Gary Hart? Senator, candidate to be president of the United States, front runner in 1987. Everybody thought, hands down, he will be the Democratic nominee for president in 1988. And then in May of 1987, a rumor started going around about Gary Hart having had a marital affair. And almost immediately, Gary Hart resigned from the race. Because back in those days, that was an automatic disqualification for the White House. Since then, however, politicians of both parties have been accused of marital unfaithfulness and worse, but nobody seems to care. To our modern way of thinking, such things don't matter. But in God's economy, when it comes to ruling over God's people, character matters a great deal. That's why neither Reuben nor his descendants could be trusted to lead, lead God's people. And that's why when Paul talks about choosing leaders for a church, well, the qualifications are all about character. And so Paul says, if you're going to be an elder, you've got to be faithful to your spouse, not violent, not given to drunkenness, not a lover of money. Character counts. And that's why Reuben was disqualified. So if son number one is out of the running to lead this family, then you might expect that the next up would be son number two or son number three. In this case, that would mean Simeon or Levi. But Jacob says, nope, they're disqualified too. But for a different reason than Reuben. 
If Reuben was disqualified for his immoral behavior, then Simeon and Levi are disqualified for their violent behavior. They're bullies. They have the wrong temperament to lead. Look what he says in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. That's sons number two and three. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. I'm I'm not going to listen to their advice. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. I think he's saying here, hey, family, don't hitch your wagon to their star. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. This has reference to another story that we passed over back in chapter 34. In chapter 34, you have a story about how Levi and Simeon have a sister named Dinah. And a guy from a neighboring town, a Canaanite by the name of Shechem, sees Dinah and he rapes her. And he humiliates her. And in spite of that, he wants to marry her. And so he says to his father, hey, uh, I want you to arrange for me to marry this woman. And so Hamor, his father, has this idea that he'll go to Jacob and, and he'll say, hey, my son really likes your daughter. We'd like to intermarry with your people. You can take our daughters for your sons and you can have our daughters for your sons and we'll do business together. It's going to be great. And Hamor is on his way to see Jacob when he's intercepted by Levi and Simeon out in the field. And Hamor tells the boys what he's after and what he's going to propose to Jacob. And Levi and Simeon say, well, you can forget about that until your guys get circumcised. So Hamor goes back and he tells the people in his town what's up and they all agree to be circumcised. On the third day, while the men are still healing up from their surgeries, Levi and Simeon go into town and they slaughter every man of the city. They set their sister Dinah free and they pillage the city. And when Jacob finds out about it, he's livid. He says, what have you done? You've made us a stench in the whole region. If the Canaanites decide that they want to gang up against us, we're done. They'll wipe us out. And Simeon and Levi respond by saying, well, we couldn't let that that guy treat our sister like a prostitute, could we? Of course they couldn't, but did they have to wipe out a whole city in response? That's the point. And so Jacob says to them, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Not only will neither Simeon nor Levi lead the nation, but their tribes are going to be scattered within the nation. I remember in first grade, there were two naughty boys, Tom and Mike, and uh, whenever they sat together, it was disaster, right? They, they'd always be making trouble and slapping each other, and the teacher was always disciplining them. So, of course, it didn't take long for Miss Landry to figure out where the problem in the classroom was, and her solution was to separate them, right? So, so Tom sat on this side of the room, and Mike sat on that side of the room. I guess these days they would have had a diagnosis and be put on some kind of medication, but... Back in those days, we just called them naughty boys, and that was the solution, was to separate them. And that's essentially what, what, God, uh, what Jacob is saying about these two brothers. I'm going to scatter them throughout the nation. And that's exactly what happened. Simeon was given an allotment of land next to Judah, and eventually over time, they kind of got absorbed into Judah, so, such that they virtually lost their, 
their tribal identity altogether. They kind of got absorbed. And then Levi, ironically enough, and that's a story for another time in the book of Exodus, but Levi became the tribe of priests, and they didn't get an allotment of land at all. Instead, they got cities scattered here and there throughout Israel. So he says, you're going to be separated. You're going to be scattered throughout the nation. And I think here again is another lesson that we can take and apply today from the text, and that is that in God's economy, a bully is not a leader. In God's economy, a bully is not a leader. You know, in the world today, it's common to see bullies rise up and assert themselves. The world seems to admire, you know, strong men. And not only do they use violence to keep their people subservient to them, but they use violence to assert themselves and take what they want from their neighbors. And so I think we can be assured that bullies like Putin, for instance, may have their day. But a time is coming when God will strip the world's bullies of all their power. Because in God's economy, a bully is not a leader. So if son number one is disqualified for his immoral character, and sons number two and number three are disqualified uh, for their violent ways, could it be that son number four, Judah, would assume leadership of God's people? Do you remember Judah from the story so far? Back in chapter 37, it was Judah who was the one brother who said, let's not kill Joseph. Remember the, the brothers were all jealous of him and they had, they had uh, cooked up this plot to kill him. And Reuben, I mean, uh, Judah finally said, hey, let's not kill him. Then his blood would be on our hands. Look, here's some, some Ishmaelite traders. Let's just sell them to the traders instead, which they did. Now, that might not sound like such a great solution. But in reality, Reuben, I mean, Judah, rather, was uh, exercising significant leadership in making sure that the brother stayed alive, at least. And we know how God ultimately used that for good. Well, in chapter 46, we encounter Judah again, the chapter 44, rather. When 20 years later, the now repentant brothers stand before Joseph, not realizing it's Joseph, he's, he's an Egyptian ruler, as far as they can tell. And this Egyptian ruler has kind of set them up in a trap and, and is saying, I'm going to keep your youngest brother, Benjamin, he's going to be my slave, and the rest of you can go home to your dad. Of course, the test was to see, are they going to treat Benjamin the way they treated him 20 years before and desert him and break their father's heart all over again? And this time, the, the repentant brothers say, no, no, no. Uh, they all go back and they, they plead the case. And it's Judah who steps up and says, keep me instead. I'll give my life in his place. Please let him go home to his father. Because if he doesn't go home, his dad will die of sadness. And so it's Judah who offers himself up, much as one descended from his tribe, the Lord Jesus, would one day offer himself up in place of us all. So Judah has already shown the best kind of leadership among the brothers, except perhaps for Joseph himself. So maybe we shouldn't be too surprised when Jacob says to Judah, the family mantle of leadership is being passed to you, Judah. Look at verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. 
You're going to be preeminent among your brothers. They're going to, to, to be sub, sub, subject to you. Well, we all know that when King David came to power, this prophecy came true, didn't it? When David united the kingdom of Israel and Judah, he was renowned for his military victories in defense of God's people, beginning with his victory over the Philistine giant Goliath. And it says in the scripture that God gave David victory everywhere he went, subduing Israel's enemies, expanding the borders to the full extent of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the whole of Israel acknowledged him as king and then his son Solomon after him. And the line of succession continued to pass through David's family and the tribe of Judah for hundreds of years to come. Jacob says of him in verse 9, Judah is a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? You know, even in ancient times, the lion was considered the king of beasts. And the lion was considered a, a, a symbol of royalty. David's fitness for the throne was evident from the time when he as a boy dared to take on uh, Philistia's mightiest warrior, declaring that he would have victory in the name of the Lord. And in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when a sealed scroll is presented representing the, the final chapters of human history, there is only one who is found worthy to open that scroll and look into it. And he's called, guess what? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who has conquered. Meaning that the one who will oversee the unfolding of history to its climax is none other than Jesus himself, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords who descended from the kingly line of David and the royal tribe of Judah. And because he shall reign forever and ever, Jacob further prophesies in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, until he's finally offered the, the, the reverence that he is due, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see where all this is headed? Is that this one shall not only rule over Israel forever and ever, but over all the peoples of the earth. We are moving toward that time when people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation will gather around his throne in worship. And at that time, as the Apostle Paul put it, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Messiah, descended from David of the royal tribe of Judah, will be the heaven-sent leader who will rule in power and justice, in righteousness and truth. He came the first time to purchase our salvation, to redeem us by his blood. And the scripture say, says he's coming a second time, not to work out our salvation, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so as much as we may despair that there's no leader currently up to the task of leading us out of the mess we've made of this world. It has been prophesied from the very first book of the Bible that one is coming who will indeed bless all the nations of the earth, one who will make all things right and make all things new, one who will set uh, rule in justice and in truth, one who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Verses 11 and 12 talk about how amazing that time will be. It will be a time of abundance ruled by Jacob's greatest son. Look at verse 11 where it says, binding his foal to the vine 
and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Do you remember the time when Jesus was preparing for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he would reveal himself as Israel's true king? And he told his disciples to go up ahead, down the road, you're going to find a, a, a colt, a, a donkey, and it's colt tied. Uh, untie them and bring them to me. And he was going to ride the colt into the city. Well, it was on that colt that he rode into Jerusalem that day. And what were they shouting? Hosanna. Blessed is the coming kingdom of who? Our father, David. One can hardly miss the connection here to Jesus' triumphal entry. But Jacob pictures the donkey's colt being tied to a choice grapevine, which is kind of unusual because one wouldn't normally tie a colt to a grapevine, much less to a choice grapevine, for fear of damaging the vine. But the picture here apparently is of a time when choice grapevines are so abundant that one wouldn't give a second thought to tying a donkey to one. Wine is a symbol of wealth and blessing, and in the days of this king, it will be so plentiful that one might as well use it to do one's laundry. Look at the rest of of that verse where it says, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now you might think, why would one wash his garments in the blood of grapes? Could this be what the book of Revelation is alluding to when it talks about how those in the end times will have their robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb? Among his greatest blessings is his capacity to wash us clean by the shedding of his blood. What a beautiful Savior he is. Verse 12 says, His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Would anyone like to follow a leader like that? One who is mighty and he uses his might for good. One of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis' little children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's this, uh, you know, story of this family of English children, four of them, find themselves strangely transported to this land where it's always winter and never Christmas. And so they, they arrive in the dead of winter, and they find out that this realm is ruled very poorly by a white witch, the wicked white witch. She rules with cruelty. She's a bully. Uh, she, she has a terrible temperament. But there's a prophecy. And the children learn of this prophecy from a talking beaver who is their host. And the prophecy goes like this, according to Mr. Beaver. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes into sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him, says Beaver. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he should be a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. 
if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Even, even so long ago, Jacob, in faith, made a prophecy. All the way back in the very first book of the Bible, he prophesied before he died that one would come one day in power from his own family, a lion of the tribe of Judah to whom all the peoples of the earth will bow and his reign will be glorious, a blessing to all the nations. The bottom line is there is coming a day when God will send a leader for good. Not only will he be the last leader we will ever need, but he will be the leader who brings good, of the, uh, brings good of the mess that we've made of this world. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the greater son of Israel's greatest king, David. He is the one who came the first time to shed his blood for our sin and wash us clean, who rose from the dead, victor over sin and death, who ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for us before the Father, he has given us his Holy Spirit in the meantime to enable us to live new life in Christ right now. And he waits for the Father's command to come again to save those who belong to him, to judge those who are in rebellion against him, and to establish his righteous reign upon the earth forever. You know, in an era when many people are losing hope because we have such little confidence in our leaders, in a time where we fear our best days are behind us, in a time when we can't see a way out of the mess this world has become, we can be sure that from the very beginning, God has planned to send a leader for good. You know, the book of Revelation begins by saying, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Jesus himself in the last chapter of Revelation says, surely I am coming soon. To which we who love him should all respond, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> 